What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Have you ever had a hoe phase? That's not the only term for it, of course, but it came up in two of my recent interviews, and you'll hear both stories today. Urban Dictionary defines hoe phase as a time of life when you're fine with, quote, exploring promiscuous activities and connecting with random people. Then they list examples of activities you might explore during your phase, such as flirting with strangers, being a tease in social settings, making out and getting caught up in the moment. I'm not sure that whole definition is the greatest, but I do appreciate that they added this. A hoe phase helps you establish what you like and don't, explore your sexuality, and have fun. One thing that can be great about a period of sexual adventurousness is where it can lead once it's done. Take it from podcaster Janae Ledger and sex and intimacy coach Court Vox. Let's start with Janae's story. Janae had a more sex-positive upbringing than many folks, thanks to her savvy parents. You know, my mom was always super open about, hey, Janae, if you start to get sexual, you know, we'll put you on birth control, obviously, because we wanted to plan ahead and not accidentally get pregnant as a teenager. My parents always taught me, if you tell us, we can help you. It did not take long for Janae to sense how lucky she was for that. Her friend's parents weren't exactly on the same page. A couple of my friends, you know, they were sexually active. And one time, actually, my mom had to buy one of my friends a plan B. Because this was like back in the day when you actually had to like be a certain age, I believe, to buy a plan B. So my mom actually bought it for one of my girlfriends because she didn't feel comfortable enough to ask her parents. And so that was like a huge factor and just like, oh, other people are not like my parents and other people weren't grown up in an environment where they could communicate that. Realizations of many kinds have been pretty perpetual in Janae's sexuality journey since. One huge burst of learning took shape during what she lovingly calls her hoe phase in early adulthood. It was kind of like the end of high school. I had a long-term boyfriend. We broke up. And then I actually, crazy enough, moved to Idaho for college across the country. I live in New England. And so it was quite a extraordinary trip. And an extraordinary time to let loose, explore, and let the sex fun begin. Being in a new area, obviously not knowing many people, it was such a cool experience to be like, ooh, okay, like, I want to experience someone, you know, in the West. And I just think even that alone was such a different experience than people in New England. She found people in New England.
and more straightforward in terms of dating, and people in Idaho more laid back, and many were young parents. I saw this guy that was like a dad to like a little boy, and like that sex was very eye-opening to me because I had never experienced that, and he was like really, really good at a lot of things, and so it kind of taught me like, oh, okay, like, I like this. I like these certain things. He was very nurturing, she said, good at reading her in the moment and hitting her clit area just right. People who are caring in other parts of their lives do tend to make thoughtful lovers. In any case, Janae didn't plan for these adventures to become a full-on hoe phase. It kind of just happened naturally, and I kind of wanted to just see what was out there. And like, I had only had sex with a couple people. And then I was like, what else can I learn from these people? Oh, like I really, really like being spanked or, you know, I really, really want to try this. Being able to explore and try new things with new people. I think there's such a shame around it and it shouldn't be shameful because you are literally just seeing what you like, what you don't like. What is so shameful about that? A flippin' men. Janae had a tough time choosing which experiences to share with us. There were so many. But one of the first that came to mind for her was a wonky one. I was seeing this guy, and I only had met him, like, probably twice. He came to one of our parties in Idaho. And so I was like, oh, this guy's really cute. He seems really fun. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to hang out with him one more time. And then after the party, like, I really want to have sex with him. At the time, I was literally sleeping on a futon in my bedroom because I was a poor college kid, let's be honest. That didn't deter the guy. Hours later, they were getting busy on the futon. And Janae made sure he wore protection. And we were having sex, and and all of a sudden, I'm like, I feel like the condom is not on there anymore. He took it off without even telling me. And I was absolutely horrified by that. And he was like behind me in doggy style. And I was like, that is so disrespectful to do. Yeah, it was bad. When that happened, did you talk about it? Did you stop? I know it can also feel like sometimes when we're so shocked, your body Mm. just kind of keeps going. We kind of freeze. Like, what was your reaction? Yeah. From what I remember, I was pretty thrown off. Like, why did you take it off? Like, I was offended. I was like, That's so wrong of someone to just think that they can do. So I think I was definitely upset, and I think I made him either put another one on or I think it stopped. I honestly don't really remember. Yeah, but you remember that big important takeaway. Right. So grateful you shared that too because I think it happens more often than we hear about it, and it's an important thing to to keep in mind. So how did you apply that? You said you felt like you needed to be more careful moving forward. Was that more conversations? How did that look or did it affect the trust you might have going into another experience? Yeah, yeah. I was definitely kind of more aware of it. And I shared it with other people like, hey, my last partner just randomly took the condom off without my permission. So I definitely want to be safe about this. And so I kind of just communicated that. During sex, she also started checking to make sure the condom hadn't gone missing. Just because I was like, you know what? This is something I'm not playing around with. You know, I'm trying to be as safe as I can while I'm in my hoe phase, so. Thankfully, many of Janae's experiences were a lot more positive. She loved exploring sex in different locations, for example. I find having sex outside is just 
super fun. The weather, like the the wind, whether it's nice out, whether it's cold out, I think it's just such a fun experience. Then there was the time she and a partner had sex on a balcony. It's like a beautiful sunset or kind of like having dinner, whatever. And then I'm like, I want to have sex on the balcony. And I'm like kind of nervous, but it's like that hot, like, are we going to get caught? Is someone going to see us? I think I like sat on him, like kind of like on top of him with my like legs wrapped around him. And it was, I just remember it being so, so hot. Another time, a guy she was seeing bought her a massage for her birthday. And before the massage, you go in a hot tub and you kind of get to relax. And the masseuse was so kind enough to let him come in the hot tub with me, even though he wasn't getting the massage. And I remember him being like, let's have sex in here. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, so the woman could have come and gotten me for the massage at any point, but we were like, screw it. We're just gonna, we're gonna have our fun. So that, that was probably the most wild encounter that I ever had. So I just, I love, I love kind of exploring and doing it in different places. In all, Janae's hoe phase lasted about a year. And I think really when I realized it was kind of like, okay, I think I've had enough of this was, you know, after I had some fun, after I kind of explored, you know, as much as I thought that I needed to, I guess you could say, I think it was kind of the point where I thought, I think I might want to get into another relationship. So that's kind of when I started to go on the dating apps, start to meet new people. And then of course, naturally, I started to date someone that ended up being a serious relationship. So I kind of think that that was like a catalyst for, all right, Janae, you had your fun. You explored some different people and now it's time to kind of move on to the next part of my life. One relationship later, she met her now fiancé through a dating app. She loves where she is now, sex and relationship-wise. And she remains very grateful for her hoe phase. It made her learn what to ask for in and out of the bedroom, she said. Plus, once she found the one, she didn't have to wonder what it was like to explore elsewhere because she'd had those experiences. And it taught her a ton about communication and setting reasonable expectations. If you would like to delve into your own sexploration phase, maybe you recently went through a breakup like she did before hers started, or you just want to venture into new sex terrain, Janae shared this advice. You know, if you are going through a breakup, you know, you might be heartbroken. I would say take the time for yourself first and then figure out okay, what do I want next? Because I think really breaking down, okay, like maybe I do want to explore and I want to have fun and see what I really like, what I don't like. And to experience either your first partner or some new partner, I get it can be a little intimidating. You might be nervous, but I think really being communicative with what you want and being upfront, like, okay, I met this new person. We're going on a date. I think it's time to say, I kind of like you, I see this maybe going somewhere, or I kind of just want to have time to explore and figure out what I want. And I think that that's so important to communicate that with whomever you're going to be sleeping with, because then that sets the expectation of, okay, I just want to have fun right now. I'm not looking for something serious. Also, figure out maybe some fantasies or maybe something that you have always wanted to try. Maybe 
it's having a toy in the bedroom with someone else. Maybe that's something that you have always wanted to try out. I always say, blame it on me. Say, hey, I listened to this podcast the other day. I listened to Janae's podcast or I listened to Girl Boner and I've, I heard them talking about like a toy in the bedroom. Would you be open to that? And just really set that expectation. It doesn't have to be so intimidating, especially if the person is open about this type of stuff. And if they're not, then maybe you don't want to sleep with them, right? While you're at it, don't forget about self-pleasure. Because I think that is so, so important in your discovery because then you can figure out, oh, wow, I really think that that feels really good to me. And then you can kind of share that with your future partners. Another awesome way to explore your boners out, pick up a new sex accessory at The Pleasure Chest. I always love the sparks of fun and curiosity a new toy can bring. Even a new type of lube can add some novelty and pleasure to your usual solo or partner sex. Try a flavored or warming lube, for example, or have your partner guess which flavor the lube is once you start playing. If you're in the Chicago, New York, or LA areas, I highly recommend hitting up a pleasure chest store in person. Go there with a friend or a partner. I've gone there with a couple of listeners and just have fun browsing. It is such a welcoming place and the staff is super knowledgeable. To order online and get free, always discreet shipping over $75, visit thepleasurechest.com. Again, that's thepleasurechest at thepleasurechest.com. Next, Court's story. Court recalls being very connected to his body and sexuality from early on. When he was just four years old, he and a neighbor friend, also four, would help each other experience orgasms. We wouldn't ejaculate, obviously, but we were having orgasm. I remember saying, like, hold on, don't stop, I'm getting a tickle. Then, as Court neared puberty, the HIV-AIDS crisis happened, and he had a much closer look than most kids. My mother worked for AFAN, which stands for Aid for AIDS of Nevada, which was a nonprofit in Las Vegas. And she was the director of volunteers. And so she was in charge of like getting volunteers to help people that were sick and also who didn't have money. And they would bring them food and take them to appointments and things like that. So I was exposed to it really early on and also like at the height of it. I remember seeing men very sick, very ill, very thin in my mom's office. And so it was something that I was aware of really young. Do you recall talking to your mom about it and kind of what she told you? She was always very open about sex, especially during that time, because I think she was, she was likely afraid for us. You know, she knew the ramifications of the disease and, and what it was doing to people and, and the stigma around it. And so there was always like books in our house around sexuality and, you know, this is where babies come from and lots of discussions around sexuality and sex itself. She also had a, a sense of humor about it. There were times when she had to go pick up things from people's homes that were left and it was like a bag of giant dildos and, you know, <laughs> so, you know, had a sense of humor with her around it. 
masking the immense grief and loss that was constantly in that office. All of that understandably impacted Court's sense of his sexuality. I think what's interesting is I was a really hypersexual child, like really into my body and some masturbation. And you'd find me like on the floor, on the couch, anywhere. My mom's thing was always, you know, it's okay to do that, but you got to go to your bedroom. That changed after Court's seventh birthday, when his parents separated. I sort of, I took on a new role in my family, which was more like father figure to my sister and my mom. So my dad left, and I feel like it changed me a lot. I also was in second grade and starting to understand that I was different than other kids in my class. And, and I kind of like took a step back. I wasn't so outward with it. He kept holding his sexuality back, he said, until he went to college. I went to theater school and I started to come back into my own body, started to be more free in my expression, also understanding my queerness and being okay with it and sharing with people more. He said his sexuality had a renaissance during that time. Still, HIV and AIDS affected his early coming out in his 20s. Because even during that time where it wasn't so much a stigma anymore and they were starting to have drugs that helped people live longer and you know people weren't dying as much from it, there was still the stigma of you could die from this. And there was still the stigma of sex equated death in a lot of ways. And so coming out in you know late 2009 and wanting to be sexual but being very cautious and careful and even using condoms like the very next day going to get tested just being like super hyper vigilant and in response to that i had a three and a half year partnership and then took a year off from that and went right into a five year both of those relationships were monogamous and sort of like kept me from being promiscuous and and having sex with multiple partners i didn't really have to think about it and then and then grow boner. <laughs> yeah, do tell. What happened kind of in early 2000 and I think 12, 13 is Truvada came on the scene, which is also known as PrEP. And now we have Discovy, which is the next generation. And also Grinder. Those two things changed the landscape of sex for, for gay and bisexual men in a way that sex was really accessible and it wasn't scary from a health perspective anymore. It didn't mean you had to die. And so it really changed my trajectory, my sexual trajectory in my 30s to be like, okay, if I'm gonna be a hoe, this is the time. And ooh, did I, did I take advantage of that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I had also come out of a five-year relationship that was monogamous and I was sort of like, okay, this is like the perfect recipe for the perfect storm. And I also, I had spent a lot of my 20s as more of a bottom and in my second relationship, we kind of shared the duties of we were both really kind of 50-50 verse. And coming out of that, I was like, you know what? I don't feel like doing that anymore. I don't feel like bottoming anymore. And I really want to move into my top energy. And so I did. I moved a lot in my top energy. And, and I, had, I had a great time. You know, sex became uh, an expression for me. It became also a way to blow off steam, a way to connect with people in really like deep, intimate ways. 
Court also learned that he likes to move into relationships through sex. Because it sort of like opens up the doors for deeper conversation, whereas like, I'm really not interested around what your favorite color is and where you came from. It's like, you know, like, let's get to the juice here. When you've had sex with someone and it's good, when you're laying there afterwards and asking deeper questions and even just some of the reveals that come without even asking are so big and reveals like, that was really good. I felt so held. I felt so connected. And let me tell you about this time when I didn't feel that way or I felt taken advantage of, and this feels different. That's the kind of intimacy people can open to when there's been a good sexual experience, he said. And like Janae, his sexual self-discovery and exploration have continued in various ways since that hoe phase. Back then, he was practicing dominance in a soft core way, he said, bringing a dominant energy to sex and relationships. But a few years ago, he got really into dominance and sadism, or D and S. And he started practicing it as a craft. I had a submissive for three years. They were a big part of my learning. Their submissive and their masochist really matched my dominance and my sadist in a way that was super fun and playful and also rich and connected and destructive and beautiful and <laughs> all the things. Oh, that's so good. When we hear about DNS, Court said, it's easy to imagine the hard, rough, dark, leather side. And it really doesn't have to be that. For me, DNS is about attention and detail and focus. Are you paying attention? Because I am paying attention. And if you're not, I'm going to find out and I am going to reprimand you for that. And sometimes the reprimands do not have to be spankings or beatings because what if your submissive likes that? It's not so much a punishment, is it? So figuring out from a psychological perspective how your submissive ticks, that's more interesting to me. One example Court recalls involves his submissive flipping him off. It was like a pattern of theirs. And I don't like them. I think that's disrespectful to tell someone to fuck you or fuck off. And I said, don't do that again, or you will be reprimanded. You will be punished. And of course, they thought, oh, I'm going to get a spanking, and I'm going to love that. Well, we had planned to go to dinner, and they flipped me off. And I said, okay, that's, that's the last time. You will be punished at dinner tonight. And so on the way to dinner, I said, I need this car to stop. And I went into the store, and I bought some tape. And I taped their middle finger to their other fingers of both. And they said, well, this is going to be a really fun dinner, isn't it? And that's how they had to eat dinner and, you know, have the waiter look at them funny. And, you know, it was funny and fun and also embarrassing. That was a fun way of using DS that is not as hard as is portrayed in media. Yeah. Oh, I love that example. And the way you described the attention sounded so mindful and then yeah. to have these like joyful experiences that you might laugh through i don't think people think of that as dominance and sadism yeah i mean the the sadist part was watching them eat with edward scissorhands 
and begging me, please take the tape off. I promise mm. I'll never flip you off again. Nope, you're going to wear that all night, all through dinner. <sighs> Dessert's a long way away. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, so it's like when you start to know someone, you can play in that way um, that's more creative. And also, again, if you know that the person that you're with really enjoys being spanked, that's not a punishment. That's not a reprimand. And so figuring out creative ways to do that. Essentially, DS for me is about connection. It's about finding ways to stay in connection with someone that meet, meet each other. Court's sex exploration has also led him to recognize other kinks he has, including one I hadn't really heard about, a crying kink. He first learned it was a thing while reading the book BDSM 101 by Rev Jen. Because she was a professional submissive, she describes this client who comes in on his lunch break and he's wearing a suit and tie and he wants her bound when he arrives bent over. And he basically wants to see her cry. And then he jacks off and he leaves. It's not quite in alignment with my kink, but there's something so honest about tears. And I also know when they're not real. That's my other kink is honesty. I don't want fake shit. I don't want people to give me what I want because I've asked for it. I want them to give it to me because it's authentically coming from them. And so that is the same with tears. He doesn't even care where the tears come from. So the tears might come from pain. The tears might also come from just an emotional release, from sadness or joy. Just the expression of tears themselves are so honest and so real. To be given someone's tears is, the, is an ultimate gift. Court witnessed that when he worked on a scene called Tears with Davy Wavy for the erotic platform Himeros.tv. And while a lot of thought and preparation went into the shoot, it was largely unscripted. Tears was one of a series court shot with Wavy, and they were all designed to be expressions of Court's fantasies and desires, things he's actually experienced in some way. Of them all, Court said, Tears was the most powerful. I showed up as an intimacy consultant and worked with the actors prior. And then once they're on camera, they just let it shoot. What you're seeing is sort of like their authentic connection with each other. And so they don't want to ruin that. So the tears part, you know, they kind of interpreted it for themselves. The scene that unfolded, he said, was powerful to watch. It drew up all sorts of emotions. The submissive who is crying at the end, he's, he's jacking off on the floor, looking up at Dominant, and he's crying, and he's saying things like, am I worthy of your love? Am I worthy of your affection? Tell me, I need this, I want this from you. It, it wasn't fake. Like to see this performance of this actor is pretty powerful. You could hear a pin drop on set. Other people were crying. <laughs> it, was, 
what's interesting to me about it is like, am I sad? Am I happy? Am I turned on? It's just like the fuckery of it is so compelling. I love juxtaposition and oxymoron and like, just like they're crying, but I'm also like, am turned on. (laughs) Like what is going on in my body? Yeah. So I just love, I love that that could be a potential confusion in other people's bodies as they watch it. When the scene went live, Wavy posted about it on Instagram. He wrote, Are tears sexy? I think so. Men's difficulty in expressing their emotions through tears is the result of societal expectations, gender norms, and cultural conditioning. From a young age, we are taught that boys don't cry. Imagine how our world might be different if men were given the space to express their emotions in healthy ways. Imagine the empathy, connection, and compassion we'd all experience. Imagine what that might look like in an erotic scene between two men. Tears, which is free to watch on the company's website, currently has over 43,000 views. If you see it, consider this from court. My invitation is, is to, to feel into the confusion and then go, I have the capacity to hold all of this at the same time. There is this sentiment that we can either be sad or happy or turned on or not. But the reality is, is that we're often running so many emotions all at once. And to be joyful about something means that there's a potential for loss. There's a potential for sadness. And when we're feeling grief, it means that we had immense love for something, immense affection for something. They're always hand in hand. And so to kind of be with all of them all at once, that feels like a powerful place to be. It's so poetic. Like it felt almost Shakespearean the way that you were describing this person. Mm -hmm. You know, just, you know, in theater, just (laughs) the feelings are so big and so layered and I was feeling that just you describing it. Yeah, I love big feelings. I think that's what DS play and and specifically S&M has a potential to do. These are like core emotional and physical experiences. This is not something you walk away from going, yeah, that was cool. This is like something that is usually pivotal and leaves a mark and literally and figuratively of this was a core experience and that's why people come back to it because you feel so alive if you are curious about dns play and you want to try it out for the first time court suggests easing in versus trying to create one of the experiences he described I feel like to to play in this realm with amateurs, you're not going to have the same experience that I'm talking about. And so building a dynamic with somebody that you're already in relationship with could have really good legs of like identifying the power dynamics that already exist in your relationship because they're there. He shared a real life example about this. So I was doing a workshop at the Soho House in Paris, and it was a somatic exploration of DS 
of really just being able to tell somebody what to do to you or what you wanted to do to them. Very simple. And this is such a hard exercise for people. It really is diagnostic. Okay. <laughs> it's very diagnostic. <laughs> anyway, this couple, it was a straight couple. They were sitting in the front and they were probably in their 50s. And they sat kind of with their arms crossed. The man kind of was very judgy the whole time. He didn't want to participate. And the woman followed suit. Sort of like three-fourths of the way through, I said, does anyone want to participate in this? And he said, I, I think this is probably not for us. I realize that we are, are not ever going to be in this kind of dynamic. The wife said nothing. And I thought to myself, so interesting that this couple is in a DS relationship. They just don't know it. You know, he's speaking for her. He's telling me that they're going to leave on behalf of the couple, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so oh my gosh. It's like, sir, you are already doing this. You just don't know it. So a lot of times it is like, where are the power dynamics in, in your relationship already? Bringing awareness to them and actually bringing ritual to them. I have a teacher, Max Cameron, who talks about bringing intention and ritualizing behaviors and, and things that you're already doing for each other making them explicit, explicit acts of love and devotion for one another. So what would be an example of that? Like, could it be just like I'm making morning coffee? Yes. Like I make your morning coffee for you and mm, this isn't how I want it. Let me show you how I like it made. I like one scoop of sugar and I like just a splash of cream. Let's try it again. Mm, We're almost there and not quite there. Third day. Wow, good job. This is the best coffee ever. Or third day, still not right. Bend over. So it's offering correction. And then if it's still not right, offering correction again, maybe. If it's still not right, then it's time for a little punishment. So there's lots of little ways to play with this that are not so serious, not big, big scenes. And I could get into big scenes. Those are the salacious things that people want to hear and want to see. And I got plenty of that. But I think these, these small pieces in between are ways of keeping that connection that say to your partner or say to your submissive and dominant, we are in this dynamic. You are reinforcing the dynamic and it reinforces the connection. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I also appreciate your point about how the bigger scenes that you were talking about in your experience aren't something that someone new to this should just expect or even dive into because I could see that not being the best setup. Yeah. I mean, when I'm coaching clients and, and, and even like if I'm doing a scene like this with someone and like I have them tied to the ceiling and they've got one leg off the ground and I'm forcing them to have as many orgasms as they can possibly have in in, an hour and a half. And they're like, please don't make me come again, please. It's like, we've got more in there. Here we go. At the end, I'm like, you know, if you're going to try and play with somebody outside this, you know, you should ask them some questions about rope. What's your skill set with rope? What should I be concerned about? You know, is there any risk with rope? And like, do you have some safety scissors? I mean, these are like really basic questions. But if somebody's like, there are no risks involved with rope, you should just be like, Thanks anyway, moving on. <laughs> and, and I had a client actually who I told these basic things to, and they were going to play with somebody and they asked these questions. And the dominant said something like, you shouldn't have to ask these questions. You should just submit. 
Actually, no. Submissive does not mean you're a fucking doormat and doesn't mean you're going to put yourself in harm's way. If you're going with the prime directive, which says the submissive is the property and will take care of the property at all costs, which means taking care of self also. That's a shift for a lot of people of, I got to take care of myself first. Whether you're interested in BDSM type play or not, court recommends embracing rituals in your life. Doing so could even play a role in your own hoe phase, or whatever you want to call it, whether you explore them on your own or with others. I think why, why I love ritual so much is that you have, you're, you're already doing rituals in your life. There is ceremony in your life, but you're calling them habits. And habits are so unsexy. They are mundane. And so how do you make the mundane special? How do you make the mundane something different, something to look forward to, is you create context and ritual. Sometimes just asking yourself those questions or journaling about them can go really far. With some awareness and creativity, even the seemingly smallest act can mean far more. more from Janae by listening to My Naked Mindset, wherever you get your podcasts. The show is all about destigmatizing topics around sex, dating, and mental health. It's meant to provide a place where you can learn, laugh, and enjoy a fun little escape. Janae also created a daily gratitude workbook called Self-Love Journal, which is available on Amazon. Court will explore erotic rituals and more at Sacred a small group retreat for queer men. It'll take place in Mexico in February. He also offers an online course for a broader audience called Invitations to Intimacy. Learn more or sign up at bodyvox.com or by following The Body Vox on Instagram and Facebook. Find bonus wisdom from Janae and Court in the Girl Boner Patreon. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would love it if you would leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or in the iTunes Store. Thank you so much for listening.